Uh, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. Um, When it comes to the book of Revelation, as I've said probably many times, um, God never intended to leave his readers in the dark. The fact that the book of Revelation has been the cause of so much uh, confusion and anxiety is ironic um, due to the fact that, that its title is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's to reveal something. It's not to hide something. It's not an apocryphon. It's a revelation. It's not something hidden. It's not a mystical code um, to be decoded. It is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with regard to the study of uh, eschatology, which means end things, it comes from two Greek words meaning last and study, the study of last things, the study of end things. Um, Chapter 20 of Revelation um, raises the question, where are we in redemptive history? Where are we today in redemptive history? Where was the church in the first century with regard to redemptive history? And I'll just say this, we're in the same place, basically. And here we enter in a a much debated portion of scripture uh, within one of the most controversial books in all the Bible. And when we look at the issues at hand here, that is the binding of Satan, uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the so-called millennium, uh, you soon realize that whatever position a believer takes with regard to the millennium, all trace their differences back to this text. Because it's the only place that it's mentioned throughout the Bible. Now, of course, you probably know that premillennial dispensationalism dominates the eschatological landscape of our day. And it's assumed by most Christians, generally, for the most part, American Christians, that that is the way you view last things. And that view was popularized by the Schofield Bible, uh, the rise of Dallas Theological Seminary, which is very dogmatic, by the way, about uh, what they believe uh, an appropriate eschatology is, that being dispensational premillennialism. Um, Also, with the movement of the Calvary Chapel um, Church, the Calvary Chapel Movement, the Zionist movement, which connects all these things to ethnic um, national Israel. There's uh, fictional writings of our day. The most popular, of course, are the Left Behind series. Referred to, by the way, um, in a piece that 60 Minutes did in 2004 as the greatest story ever sold. Not told. Sold. So because of these things... 
Uh, many Christians today have fixed in their mind a certain understanding of last things. Most of you likely came out of premillennial dispensationalism. Some of you may still be stuck there. That's okay. And it may have come as a shock to you, or it may come as a shock to you this morning, uh, that when you learned, or when you learned that the historic Protestant position taught by the Reformers, Lutheran, Reformed churches, is what's known as uh, amillennialism, which is a terrible misnomer, by the way, uh, because all means no. So we would more accurately, accurately refer to it as a realized millennium or present millennialism. Have we made that clear over the months? Okay, good. Joe says yes. Okay, which teaches that the millennial age refers to this, the present reign of our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, and that the thousand years is a symbolic reference to the entire period of time between Christ's first and second advents. And it's a number like the rest of the numbers in the Revelation that are symbolic. Symbolic numbers. And I must say, I must say this at the outset, there are very few premillennial dispensationalists who, who are very amicable if you reject a stealthy, that is a secret, premillennial, pre-tribulation rapture. And if you hold to the present millennial view that we do here, some go as far as to call you anti-Semitic, and accuse you of not holding to a literal um, interpretation of the scripture. I've covered that over the weeks as well. But it's important because you're going to have many friends that are dispensational premillennialists. Now, although differing views of eschatology ought not to divide Christians from fellowship, one's eschatology, nevertheless, is very important. Amen? Because it says much about the way you read scripture as a whole. It says much about the way that you view the Great Commission, the way you view geopolitics, and the way you view culture and the future. So here then, this placement of Revelation chapter 20, coming after Revelation 19... Um, can make it rather confusing for some people in that many people read the finality of God's judgment depicted in chapter 19. They read chapter 20 and they misinterpret chapter 20 as a chronological conclusion to the destruction defined in chapter 19. That picture of the culmination of God's final judgment. I mean, isn't that not what we just read in chapter 19? The finality of God's wrath. Now, here's a big reminder. These visions are not to be set end to end. They're not to be stacked up like dominoes. is a chain of sequential events. Revelation serves as a recycling of major themes. Recapitulation. And you get that wrong, you get Revelation wrong. If one neglects the literary design of the book of Revelation, that is that it's apocalyptic literature, you will indeed misinterpret the book. 
Now, you probably noticed the last battle, the second coming, final judgment, and the final state have been mentioned many times thus far. In these, the first 19 chapters of the Revelation. Images of the last battle have been shown to us throughout the Revelation. We saw it in chapter 11. Okay, the last battle. There's one last battle, amen? Saw it in chapter 11. It's mentioned in chapter 16. It's mentioned in chapter 17. We see it at the end of chapter 19. And we'll get another look at it in chapter 20. The last battle. Now, if Revelation were chronological, we have to ask, how many last battles are there? Seriously. Way back in chapter 6, we saw that the world was judged. The final words of the chapter say, The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So in each case, beloved, this is a look at the very same last battle from different vantage points. Or as Dennis Johnson coined the phrase, from different camera angles. I think he coined the phrase. So as to call our attention to specific features that suit the Holy Spirit's purpose each step of the way. We're seeing different things with regard to that last battle, with regard to last things. Now, just as the number one rule of real estate is... Thank you. The number one rule of biblical interpretation is context, context, context. Amen. Very simple. We've, wit- we've witnessed in the Revelation seven visions, again, in the form of recapitulation. This is the seventh vision. This is another recapitulation. That is, this is another retelling or recapping of the same event. Again, you get that wrong, you get the Revelation wrong. So it's, this is simply another vision of, of God's judgment. In Revelation chapter 17 and 18, we studied the destruction of Babylon the Great. Vivid imagery, amen? In Revelation 19, we studied the fate of the beast and the false prophet, along with heaven's reaction to the news of God's judgment on the harlot, which was what? Rejoicing. Thank you, brother. Rejoicing, which led to the very occasion for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, if all of Christ's enemies are destroyed during the judgment described in Revelation 19 with that gory picture of birds being called by this angel for the great supper of God to feast upon the remains of all men, small and great, i.e., all nations, slave and free, okay, then what follows in Revelation 20 must be, has to be, a retelling of the final judgment from yet another angle shot. Amen. If all peoples and all nations are judged at Christ's return, as we saw in Revelation 19, and other parts of the Revelation, why do they immediately resurface, that is, nations, why do they immediately resurface in chapter 20? How are the nations deceived in chapter 20, verse 8? 
if they've already been destroyed? Are they gathered for another last battle? Is this the result of a second fall? I mean, where where do the nations come from? Well, naturally, if we just read this text and we just look at it on the surface, the relationship between chapter 19 and 20 cannot be chronological. So here again, in Revelation 20, verse 1, we read, and I saw. Now, as we've already noted on a number of occasions, interpreting this, or we should interpret this as another vision and not a chronological unfolding um, event in history. Wherever the expression appears, and we've seen it in chapter 4, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 13, chapter 15, and chapter 19, we have to see it as the order in which John saw the visions. Amen? Amen. Welcome back, Warwicks. I don't want to make too much of a fuss right now, but... So, this vision in chapter 20, okay, this vision actually imitates for us events already described in chapters 11 and 12. Okay, now, follow me. At the end of chapter 11, the 24 elders praise and they sing to God with a message that declares the time has come for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of all God's servants. Okay? Chapter 11. That was the end. That was the last day. That was the final judgment. So one might imagine when you turn the page from chapter 11 and you go to chapter 12 that you're going to see a vision of the new heaven and the new earth as eternity naturally follows final judgment. Fair enough? Okay. Instead... When you turn the page to chapter 12, John goes backwards. You remember that? He goes backwards to the beginning of the New Testament period. He describes the birth, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He takes us back behind the veil of the cosmic reality of the enmity that's gone on since Genesis 3.15. A cosmic vision of God's promise way back in Genesis. Jesus sees a child, or John sees a child, as Jesus proclaims or gives this vision, who rules the nations. He's about to be born. And the dragon is there standing between the legs of the woman, if you will, wanting to devour the child. Okay, Reminding us that the story of salvation is a war story filled with enmity. And then, by way of the victory of the child and his ascent to the throne in heaven, another battle breaks out, right? A battle in heaven where the dragon is seized and he's what? Thrown down out of heaven. Who is he? The deceiver of the whole world. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. 
the deceiver of the whole world is thrown down and you hear a loud voice in chapter 12, verse 10 that says, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Revelation 20 portrays another vision that describes the entire period of time between the first and second advents of our Lord Jesus Christ from a different theological camera angle. Where this time, the vision that's being depicted is the fate of the dragon, the serpent of old. Satan. So in this vision, John again moves backward. You see this? He moves backward. And it's so incredibly easy to see when you read it. It's so easy to understand unless you have a theological system or eschatological schema to prove. So we must ask, honestly, as we come to the text, when and where is the millennium? Okay? So building upon previous visions, here in chapter 20, John now describes what happens to Satan beginning with the time he was cast down to earth as described in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. Until the time of the end, depicted here in the middle chapters of middle verses of chapter twenty, where he's thrown into the lake of fire. Verse one. Verse one. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottom of his pit, and a great chain. Thank you, brother. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Now, in in, in those earlier visions, all of Satan's little string puppets have been destroyed. The beast, the false prophet, the Babylonian prostitute, all destroyed, and the adversary who stood behind them, inspiring them, was Satan whose destruction is simply saved for the last vision. Where, if you notice in the text, his destruction is given to us in two phases. Two phases. A preliminary phase described in verses 1 through 3, and that is the result of Christ's victory on the cross. That's when he's cast out, cast down. And then... An eternal phase is phase two, defined and described for us in verses 7 through 10, the result of Christ's second coming. So that is an already inaugurated phase of Satan's judgment to be followed by a consummated phase of his judgment. He's bound now. He was thrown down as, as upon Christ's victory over sin and death, thrown out. Bound, awaiting final judgment, the lake of fire. Kind of like being sitting on death row, 
You're already in prison, baby. You're not going anywhere. Until the day you go to the chair. Does anyone use the chair anymore, by the way? Florida, maybe? It's just all injection. Now, ironically, those who scream about taking this thousand-year reign literally, wooden literally, uh, those who do, when they read about this key, when they read about this chain, and when they read about this dragon, they don't dare say that those images are literal. No. But the thousand years, they say, has to be literal. They don't have a problem with symbolism until it disagrees with them. They don't have a problem with symbolism until it messes up their presuppositions. So here, look at this term keys. We've seen the term keys uh, appear a number of times. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. Chapter 3, verse 7, David, uh, Jesus holds the key of David. In chapter 9, verse 1, we see an angel referred to as a star who holds the key to the bottomless pit. So in all those texts, keys refer to authority. Authority. And no spirit, okay, no spirit, and the devil's a spirit, no spirit, as Kistemacher says, can be shackled by a chain, but can be restricted by a divine command. So keys, a chain, and 1,000 years are symbolic images. Okay? Now, this angel, notice, holds keys and a chain in his hand, which means they're about to be put to use. And by the way, angels don't have hands. They're non-corporeal. They're spirits. They don't have hands. Okay? So there's another problem. If you want to take things wooden literally. So he's about to carry the, the, out with authority, authority delegated to him, obviously by God, to jail Satan. And he uses this fourfold identification. And this reminds us of how dangerous he is. He's referred to as the dragon, depicting his fierceness, the ancient serpent, depicting his deception, all the way back to the garden, devil and Satan who seeks our damnation by slanderous accusations before God, which he no longer can do by the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So in spite of all of his ferocity, God renders him impotent. So the question is, when was he rendered impotent? Okay, as for Satan here being bound, okay, the the fact of the matter is that when Jesus died and when he rose again from the dead, the scripture says that Satan was disarmed. Colossians, look at that. Chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so that is to say the armed power he once had is no more. Pictured for us in Revelation 12 where he's cast to earth. Pictured for us here in Colossians where he's disarmed and pictured for us in Revelation 20 where he's bound. 
Verse 3. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And we'll get to that next time. See, this is where premillennial people go sideways, right here. They'll say this to me or to you. Say, okay, so you're telling me if Satan is to be bound during the millennium and the millennium is now, that means he's bound now. That's right. Correct. Well, this proves impossible for some people to accept since Satan seems to be very much at large. Amen? I mean, after all, doesn't the New Testament warn saints not to ignore him? Ephesians 6, stand, resist. 1 Peter 5, he roams about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. So if Satan is bound, how do you explain all the evil and wickedness in the world? That's the question. Fair question? Sure. Okay, so first, to answer the question, we want to look closely at Revelation 20. And we want to see what it does not say. Okay? What it does not say. It does not say that evil is gone from the world. And besides that, you don't need Satan to sin. Okay? Sinners do not need Satan in order to sin. Right? It's just the world and the flesh alone. Your own nature, the fallen man. Sinners don't need Satan. Satan is a non-physical being. He's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. So his immediate presence is not required for people to sin or for evil to manifest itself. If you think he does, then you must adopt Flip, Flip Wilson theology, which says what? The devil made me do it. Right? Remember Flip? Now, the text does not say that Satan is bound so that evil is expelled. It does not say that Satan is bound so that sin no longer exists. It does not say that. Nor does it say that Satan is completely powerless. Are you with me? Now, as I said earlier, God rendered him impotent. Okay, question. Impotent from what? Verse 3. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer. That's very, a very specific, very particular application of this binding. And that is all. That's it. Nothing else is mentioned. Out of everything Satan is, out of everything that Satan does, only one thing is mentioned here with regard to this 1,000-year binding. And that's it. That he might not deceive the nations any longer. So Satan's power in the period between the two advents of Christ is drastically reduced. Right? And the word nations there in verse 3, more specifically Gentiles, 
which Satan can no longer deceive as a result of this binding, is also from where we get our word ethnicity. If we look back at redemptive history, we read the Old Testament, Satan's power over the nations of all the world is not now what it was during the Old Testament time. We'd all agree with that, right? In the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was limited to one particular location, to one particular ethnic people, Israel. That's it. Apart from some notable, you know, proselyte conversions, i.e., you know, Ruth, and some others, Gentiles on the whole were excluded from the kingdom. And Gentile conversions were the exception. Not the rule. We'd all agree with that. Now, that's still not enough for some. Because they'll they'll cry out, well, you know, the nations, all the nations don't know Christ. Well, it doesn't say here that every single solitary nation will comprehensively receive the gospel. It doesn't say that. The text does say that the binding is very specific. It is limited. It's not comprehensive. And, and since that is what the text is saying, and that is what it's saying, then premillennialists have a problem. Okay, because it doesn't mesh with their images of lion, lions lying down with lambs and kids playing with poisonous snakes as Jesus sits on David's literal throne in literal Jerusalem, where they say his rule guarantees a thousand-year period of universal peace. Right? You've heard it. So, do they mean to say, do they mean to say that Jesus has a future literal, earthly, physical, personal reign, ruling the nations with a rod of iron, sitting on a throne in Jerusalem, and that as he does, the only thing Satan is limited from doing is deceiving the nations? As Jesus sits on a literal throne? Are you following me here? Is this what we find in Revelation 20? No. No. This image implies that the gospel has room to blossom between the first and second advents of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what has happened for the last 2,000 years. Amen? Referred to as the millennium. A realized millennium. The kingdom was inaugurated at his first coming to be consummated at his second. And that's when it's a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. Thus the reason the Lord commissioned the twelve to go out to take the gospel to all nations. You want to talk about keys? The keys that unlock blindness, it's the gospel. Keys of the kingdom. The gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, we mustn't confuse Satan being disarmed, being chained, 
being bound with Satan being finally judged. Because final judgment is still future. It doesn't mean he has absolutely no influence, because he does. He's just as bound from deceiving the nations as he once did. Because the gospel is more powerful. And the gospel was unleashed when he died and rose again and ascended from where he rules and reigns. Now, prophets such as Isaiah foresaw a day when Gentiles would flow into the kingdom. You read it in Isaiah chapter 9, chapter 42, chapter 49. But that had to be after the coming of the promised one. After the first coming of the promised one. So, on the basis of the command of our Lord Jesus Christ, these men are enabled to proclaim the truth of Christ, that is the gospel, to all nations. Satan's power has been dismantled. Satan's grip on those nations has been restricted. Now, there, even during our Lord's ministry, there are indications of this restriction. Even during his ministry, before he died. And you can see it in various statements made by our Lord. Um, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of casting demons out by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan, Jesus replied with these words, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first, what? Binds the strong man. So the expression bind is the same word rendered bound in Revelation 20. There's a similar reference made in John 12. Certain Greeks wanted to come and speak with Jesus. And their request triggered something in the mind of our Lord. And it's this. If, If the Greeks were wanting to see him, that means Satan's kingdom was already being pillaged, right? It was already being pillaged. So, speaking of his work in relation to Satan at that time, during his ministry, Jesus could say this in John twelve thirty one: Now the time for judgment. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, will be cast out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So the verb cast out is of the same root as the verb we find in Revelation chapter 20 where it says he threw him into a pit. See, this is during his ministry that Jesus speaks of the destruction of Satan. When Jesus said in John 10, verse 15, I lay my life down for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, referring to Gentiles, thank you, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. How are they going to listen to his voice? By the binding of Satan, the power of the gospel. So there will be one flock. There will be one shepherd. So he's referring to the inclusion of the Gentiles during his earthly ministry. 
So Satan, no doubt, held the nations in his grip, in blindness, and in unbelief, until he was bound at Christ's victory over the cross. And then, of course, the widespread inclusion of Gentiles came about after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell. There was no church in Asia. There was no church in Europe. There was no church in Africa. There was no church in the Americas. But Satan's power, once it was bound, unleashed the gospel to the nation. So we're seeing to this day the fulfillment of Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Father talking to the Son. Okay, now in the next few minutes. The book of Revelation, as I said early on in our studies, is the counterpart, particularly to the Old Testament book of Daniel. In Daniel 2, if you remember the scene, Daniel interprets the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, that big tall statue made of gold, silver, bronze, in iron mixed with clay. Okay, so God, through that dream, reveals for Daniel four successive world empires, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's, the Babylonian Empire, leading to the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then Rome, who ruled at the time of Christ. So, in the days of that last empire, iron and clay, Rome, the God of heaven, will set up his own kingdom. Look at Revel, uh, Daniel 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand. How long? Forever. Listen to Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. The ancient of days? the Father. And he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So again, the eternal kingdom was inaugurated. It was preached and inaugurated at the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it will be finally consummated at the second coming of Christ. Satan was bound at the vic- after the victory of the cross, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he will remain bound, released for a short time to deceive the nations, and then be cast in to the lake of fire. This is what it teaches. Look, whether you realize it or not, whether you want it accepted or not, the kingdom has come. And it's still coming. Now, I want you to see it that way. If you don't see it that way, then you're going to be uncomfortable with our teaching of the scriptures here. We don't want you to go. We want you to get it straight. 
This is what the Bible teaches. Listen to Revelation 1, verse 5. Christ is the ruler of the kings on earth. Revelation 1, 6. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests in that kingdom. When is the kingdom? It's now. The millennium is now. Revelation 1.9. John refers to himself as a brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom. That's the conflict until he comes back. The tribulation upon God's people. That heavenly conflict where the dragon was furious at the victory of Christ and he runs after who? The offspring of the woman. He can't destroy her. He can kill the flesh, but he can't destroy the bride. Christ is conquered. We are his kingdom and priests in that kingdom. So again, you have to remember, it's already established, the kingdom that is. It's not inaugurated yet. That's the new heaven. That's the new earth. That's the new Jerusalem that will descend down from out of heaven. Which tells us that the ultimate fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy of an everlasting kingdom inaugurated by our Lord will come to pass through a process and not one cataclysmic event. That's where people get all messed up. The process has already begun, and we're in the midst of that process. That inaugural prophetic truth, it enables us, God's people, to understand the New Testament. A kingdom people. And Revelation 1.3, I'll close with this. Blessed are those, here's the promise of the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written within it. So question, how could first century Christians obey what's written in it if it was intended for those living in the last seven years of history? Right? How could they obey it? How could they hear it? How could they understand it and obey what's written in it if it wasn't written to them? But was written to someone living in that seven-year period time frame, what premillennialists refer to as the Great Tribulation. They couldn't. So it can't mean something to us Right? It cannot mean something for us that was never intended for them. Amen? Amen? The kingdom's come. Satan's bound from deceiving the nations. He's not bound from stirring up evil. He's not bound from influencing kings of nations, but he's bound from deceiving the nations because the gospel's much stronger than Satan who's bound. Amen? Amen. Amen.